This is the Signs of the Times Commentary. A look at the world from around our kitchen table. We have the three Signs of the Times editors around the table today. I'm Joe Quinn. I'm Henry C. And I'm Scott Ogren. And we're ready to take a look at what's been going on a bit over the last week. First, we'll take a look at some of the problems George Bush is having at home. Then, do a bit of an update on the London bombings. And we'll leave you with a bit of music. So the first topic up for discussion today is George Bush, one of our favorite topics. And as you're all aware, Bush recently gave a speech at Fort Bragg. And before the speech, there were a lot of news reports. They were talking about how there are many Americans who are basically waking up and they've decided that perhaps Bush and the gang lied to them. And so there's sort of a general expectation that uh, the speech that Bush was going to give was responding to these concerns and he was going to lay out the the plan for Iraq and essentially answer some of these key questions that many of the American people now have. And did he do that? Not really. <laughs> Not surprisingly. One of the interesting articles that we recently had on the science page was from uh, Net, and... The, the interesting thing about it was that it, it, it basically lays out the the number of viewers of Bush's speeches over a, basically since 9-11. And we'll start off with the, 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 the speech that Bush gave nine days after September 11th. There were 82 million viewers on nine networks when he addressed a, a joint session of Congress. And so there you have 82 million people were watching. And of course, it was right after September 11th and... Uh, emotions were high, and so everyone was tuning in. Well, then on uh, May 1st of 2003, that, that was his famous speech. You'll you'll all probably remember when he landed on the aircraft carrier in his airplane, and he got out, and he gave a speech, and he announced that it was mission accomplished in Iraq, and, and you know, we'd won the war, and everything was going well, and, uh, of course, now we see that that was basically a big lie, but for that speech, there were 48.4 million viewers who tuned in. Then came the speech at Fort Bragg, and according to Nielsen Media Research, uh, an estimated 23 million television viewers tuned in to Bush's half-hour speech uh, on that Tuesday night. And one of the interesting things about that that figure is that that was 8.6 million viewers less than Bush's previous low as president, which was on August 9th, 2001, which of course was one month before September 11th happened, and that happened to be a speech on stem cell research. So we have uh, an extraordinarily low turnout for his speech. Uh, obviously, many Americans basically just gave up and decided not even to bother watching the the, the speech. Well, I think there were some people that were hoping that he might uh, address some of the concerns that people had, and of course, he just brought out the same, well, some lines from from his speeches all along the all along the raising the issue of terrorism and 9-11, and he, he wasn't addressing people's concerns at all. As one of our uh, readers wrote in, uh, they said that he was essentially speaking to the converted. And another interesting point is that at, at the speech, there were reports that the the military, the soldiers and the officers present, didn't applaud for basically the entire speech, and that finally... 
what ended up happening is there was a, a woman from the White House who was there who was in charge of uh, organizing the, such events, and she began to applaud. And it was at that point that all the military officers began to applaud. And so there's been uh, a great deal of discussion on the Internet about, you know, why why were all these... I mean, here you have the military, and of course, I mean, if, if you're George Bush and gang and the neocon gang, of, of course you're going to give a big speech at Fort Bragg in front of the military, who of course is going to applaud and cheer you, and you're going to broadcast it on TV, and everyone will think, oh, isn't that great, and let's support the troops. And and of course the entire speech, or almost the entire speech, they just stood there in, in silence. Well, I found a, a blog, I think it was a conservative blogger from the United States, who pointed out that the troops were standing at attention during the entire speech, and when troops are at attention, in a sense, they're not permitted to show any signs any uh, of reaction to things unless somebody else begins applauding, which, as you point out, uh, White House hack did at one point, and then he got some sort of, uh, of a response. But it's a curious choice to put all of the troops at attention. You wonder if they were maybe worried about what the response was going to be. Yeah, and actually that's especially interesting because uh, in this same article they were talking about how, you know, after this happened, of course, I mean, this is a big disaster for George Bush, right? I mean, it all you know, he, he organizes a speech where he's landing in an airplane on the aircraft carrier and announces, mission accomplished, and everybody's, you know, cheering and and thinks everything's great, and so here, here he has this speech at Fort Bragg, and so of course they're saying the White House came out with with a statement, and they said, well, it was, and actually, in fact, there were some senior military commanders who who backed this up that, well, we didn't want to make it a pep rally, which is ridiculous because of course every speech that Bush has given since nine eleven has essentially been a pep rally for the war on terror. Yeah, and and he handpicks the audience. There's nobody allowed in that. Uh isn't a card-carrying member of the Bushreich. And outside you have freedom of speech zones where those people who dare to dissent are kept locked up in cages. I mean, that, that's been all over the, the alternative media. Democracy in action in the United States. Yes, indeed. Well, yeah. there, in, in fact, there were we had another article from a guerrilla news network, and it was uh, entitled Troops Respond to President's Speech. And in that speech, uh, th- this... The author of this article is a, an Iraq veteran, and he basically let the Bush, Bush administration have it. Uh, he, he talks about how Vice President Cheney said, oh, you know, the insurgency is in its last throes, and then they come out and they say, well, no, maybe it'll be five years or eight years or 12 years. I mean, this is a week later where they, they do this stunning about-face, and, of course, this has provoked all kinds of talk uh, amongst well, pretty much everyone as to, you know, they're giving these conflicting signals and, you know, th- this amidst all the, 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 the animosity among the American people, and, and, and rightly so. I mean, they've been lied to. And, you know, he talks about, you know, he says, we've already learned that a phone call home and a few hundred bucks is probably the quickest way to get body armor. He talks about troops being wounded or killed because of faulty vehicles and missing armor. And, I mean, this is something that we've had on, on the science page uh, numerous times, actually, and I mean, this is this is not the only the only soldier who or, or former soldier who has who has come out against uh, the Bush regime and and basically said, you know, what's going on here? I mean, he talks about supporting the troops, and yet they have no armor, 
Yeah, they, and they he's no been cutting benefits to the veterans. Yeah, in fact, health in, benefits. In, in that same article, he says, you know, this past week it was revealed that the VA is one billion dollars short of its health care need. I mean, you know, America has all these veterans, and 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 what has the Bush administration done to 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 take care of them? Well, but you can bet nothing. the people that are running Halliburton are covered for their medical expenses. Oh, of course, and they're profiting handsomely from pretty much everything that happens in Iraq. So moving along in the the Bush news, after all this this happened, which was of course quite interesting, we have the creation of the the brand spanking new National Security Service, the NSS, which is remarkably close to the SS of Germany. Basically, President Bush granted the the new National Security Service uh, an expanded power and from what it sounds like, this is going to be another agency that is investigating terrorists and terrorism, of course, of course, in, in quotation marks, uh, which basically means they're going to be spying on the American people. We have this all these shenanigans with uh, the Cooper documents and the revelations that Karl Rove was the source for outing Valerie Plame, uh, the CIA agent. Which has been circulating as a rumor since it happened. Yeah, I, I think we had it. How long ago on the page? I mean, this this what some of our our listeners who maybe aren't big fans of the alternative media or have just discovered it uh, may not be aware of is that stories like this, the rumors that Karl Rove was was the the source of the leak in the Valerie Plame case, that's been all over alternative media for forever already. I mean, it's 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 basically nothing new to us. We've ran several stories on the Science page, and it's it's basically been widely known. And now, of course, you know you have all these this legal nonsense going on with Rove saying, "Well, yeah, okay, so I, I diverged and divulged some secrets." But and the idea that Judith Miller is a is a defender of the free press is so outrageous when she's just been feeding government propaganda for for years and years. She's a well known neocon. Uh, she was working closely with Shalabi in Iraq. You know, the free press is one thing, but when you're a shill for fascism, it's something else. Exactly, and the point about that is, the point about the Rove story is that um, Rove is now, well, he's kind of keeping mum on the, uh, on, on, he's not saying whether he actually, he was the one who, who outed Plame, Valerie Plame, as a, as a CIA agent in the Middle East. And of course... Flame's husband was the the reason that that his wife was outed as a CIA agent was that he was attempting to convince Bush and the administration that the Nigeria documents this this idea that Nigeria had been trying to sell yellow cake uh, uranium to Saddam uh, he was trying to show that that this was false, that this hadn't happened. And at the time, Bush didn't want to hear any of this stuff. He probably knew full well that, that this was all a lie. He'd been telling so many of them, it just didn't matter. What was important was to go and get Saddam because Saddam tried to kill his daddy. Yeah, so that just gives you an idea of of the nature of, of certainly the nature of the present kind of administration and the people that populate it, that they're nothing but a bunch of rogues and scoundrels who would essentially sell their own grandmother if they, th- if they thought they could make some money from it. Um, 
I mean, this idea that, you know, there's this one homogenous kind of uh, unit that is, you know, that includes the U.S. government and the intelligence agencies and the military is completely false. Uh, obviously, there's an awful lot of infighting and uh, divisive, divisiveness going on. And each little faction are out to serve their own interests, and they'll do so at the expense of the interests of other factions. Yeah, uh, actually, that, that that brings up a good point, the, the idea that within the Bush government there are these, these factions sort of battling against one another because there's a, there's a very interesting documentary, documentary about uh, Adolf Hitler, in fact, and I, I believe it's a, a BBC documentary. And the interesting thing, thing about it is that essentially what Hitler did was he would give various people in his government the same task. So basically to, to prevent anyone from trying to overthrow him, he gave p- perhaps two or three uh, senior government leaders the same task to go do whatever. And these, these two or three leaders would basically battle each other to win his favor. And, of course, in, in the Bush government, it seems that there are all kinds of senior officials who they want to get Bush's favor. They're in it for themselves. They're in it for power. And so they're constantly battling against each other. And basically they don't have time to you – know, they're, they're basically doing exactly what everyone in Hitler's government did, where everyone was, was you know, I want to be the next Fuhrer. Well, Bush perhaps isn't officially the Fuhrer yet, but – given all the laws that have been passed and the elimination of civil liberties, the imprisonment of even U.S. citizens. Uh, U.S. citizens have been declared enemy combatants. And, I mean, you you know, you add it all up, and, and what you have is basically fascism. So that's, a, that's, that's rather interesting because, of course, most people say, well, you know, how could you compare Bush to Hitler? And, well... You look at the facts, and the facts speak for themselves. And I mean, I personally didn't know a whole lot about Hitler and his whole regime, and then I decided to uh, watch various documentaries, read books, you know, basically brush up on my Nazi Germany history. And and some of the parallels are just startling. Which raises one of the points that uh, we come back to time and again, and that is how many of our beliefs, our ideas are not really our own. We only receive them because they're they're in the air. They're what our neighbors think. They're what our families think. And rather than going out and doing the research ourselves, going out and doing the reading, the investigation necessary to come to our own conclusions, essentially we're accepting ready-made ideas that are handed down from others because it doesn't... but it helps us fit in. We aren't going to make waves... Uh, if you go into the U.S., uh, we saw recently there was a, a U.S. congressman who made an allusion to Hitler, and it wasn't even a direct comparison. And then you get the the right-wingers, the, the pundits jumping all over him. You you can't have a an objective, uh, rational discussion of these kind of things because people are so emotional about it, and they, they're emotional because it touches their very, very basic beliefs. And until somebody is able to put those beliefs in question, they're not going to be able to come to an objective view of reality. 
Well, the question of George Bush and uh, his popularity at home is one that we will no doubt be returning to, especially as the Joe Wilson, Valerie Plame, Carl Rove thing plays itself out. But next, we're going to do a bit of an update on the London bombing that occurred a week ago. So we thought we'd start the discussion with a little piece by Kurt Nimmo, one of our favorite bloggers, and he has an entry called Fire and Bomb Resistant IDs in London. And in this article, he talks about how the Boston Herald has uh, an article that says that the terrorists in London were all carrying personal documents. And this is a scenario that's quite familiar. Uh, the, the reason that's given as to why these quote-unquote terrorists were carrying these, doc- these personal documents was that they wanted their identities to be known. And as Nimmo writes, now, a normal person would have big problems with this scenario, mostly because any documents on the bodies of the alleged suicide bombers would be incinerated or blown to smithereens. And he compares it to Mohammed Atta's passport found in the, the smoldering rubble of the World Trade Center wreckage. And again, in that case... Conveniently placed on, on the top of uh, a pile of burning rubble, yeah. where it could be easily found. And... Of course, there's also, as Nimmo also mentions, the the magic bullet found on the stretcher at Parkland Hospital after JFK was assassinated, and also the Pentagon strike, where in our we included in the lyrics of our song "You Lied," we included the bit about how when the airliner smashed into the Pentagon, it was vaporized, and yet they were able to do DNA tests supposedly and establish the identities of of the hijackers and. This and is, and everybody that had been on the plane. Yeah, exactly. And and this is something that has been obviously from the assassin, assassination of of JFK to 9/11 and now to the London bombings. This is something that's been happening for decades, where we have a, a copy of the Koran and some box cutters conveniently found in in a, a a rental car, and we have terrorists who commit these these evil acts, and then they happened to, after the attack, one who survives happens to go back, someone who's involved in the attacks perhaps goes back to try and get the deposit on the rental car back, which is obviously something that only an idiot would do if you're, if we're to assume that you have Osama bin Laden and there's this, you know, he's living in a cave and organizing these intricate terrorist plots and, and all this, that that just sort of sticks out like a sore thumb, where it's 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 so obvious in exactly the same way that terrorists carrying around ID because they wanted their identities to be known. or and We should point out that uh, seven of the men who have been accused of being the bombers on 9-11, uh, who apparently perished in these attacks, uh, have later been shown to be alive and have protested their innocence. So it seems a case where people are being set up, they're being used as patsies. That's a word that Nimmo uses in his, uh, in his blog entry. Uh, these are people that are being manipulated, and they're not necessarily the, the people that are behind the bombings at all. And just as with the 9-11 attacks, the media goes and interviews the family members of these alleged suicide bombers and the families are shocked, and they, they can't believe it. They think, no, it's it's not my son. In the case, as Henry mentioned, one of the parents of one of the the 9-11 attackers said, well, no, I, I, you know, he called me the other day. 
Yeah, that was Mohammed Atta's father said that he received a phone call from him uh, in the in the days following the attacks. Nemo ends on a particularly interesting point where he says, if people are stupid enough or intellectually lazy enough to believe this obvious nonsense, they probably deserve what the neocon world order has in mind for them, a repressive police state, endless war, donating of firstborn will be mandatory, and an ever-sliding standard of living as the neolibs take over the planet and turn it into a cheap labor gulag. It seems clear that the agenda of the neocons is to foment the clash of civilizations that they've been talking about for so many years, trying to turn the Islamic world as a whole into the enemy of civilization. And we saw immediately after the London bombings that a former head of Mossad came out and essentially called for a world war. And this was the the headline in the Jerusalem Post Former Mossad head calls for world war after 7-7 attacks. If we look at what he says in this article, uh, he makes some fairly outlandish claims. He says that uh, if we look at the way that the uh, attacks are progressing, he says the multiple simultaneous explosions that took place today on the London transportation system were the work of perpetrators who had an operational capacity of considerable scope. And then he says they've come a long way since the two attacks of the year 1998 against the American embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam, and we've covered those on the science page. There's a lot of evidence that suggests that it was not Arab terrorists that had carried that out. And he says, and the aircraft actions of September 11, 2001, well, by any measure... The attacks on the London London Metro are nowhere near the sophistication of the kind of attacks uh, where you're hijacking four airliners and then ramming them into buildings. So that's a little kind of strange reasoning that he comes up. We should say that we in no way think that it was 19 Arabs being controlled by Osama bin Laden that carried that out. We think it was... Uh, people within the U.S. government working with people in the Israeli intelligence agencies. But the former head of Mossad goes on and he says, we are in the throes of a world war raging over the entire globe and characterized by the absence of lines of conflict and an easily identifiable enemy. He says, there will be supreme tests of leadership in this unique situation and people will have to trust the wisdom and good judgment of those chosen to govern them. The executives must be empowered to act resolutely and take every measure necessary to protect the citizens. Given the number of lies told by Tony Blair, given the number of lies told by George Bush, there is no way at all that we have can have any faith in what these people are saying. They've shown themselves to be complete psychopaths who will do whatever it takes to impose their worldview over other people, including the demonization of an entire people. And in here, it is very clear, and he comes out and explicitly says, uh, returning to the, to the comments of the former Mossad director, that uh, each and every country must be able to act on its own uh, without uh, having to rely on international cooperation, as, as important as that might be. He says, 
no measure of this will suffice, and it cannot replace, that is, international cooperation cannot replace the requirement that each and every country effectively declare itself at war with international Islamist terror and recruit the public to involve itself actively in the battle under the direction of the legal powers that be. He's essentially calling for all-out war, and this seems to be the program and the goal of the neocons. And you mentioned the uh, the Blair and Bush effectively trying to, to demonize the Arab population and the, the religion of Islam. But the interesting thing is that m- many people write us emails and, and they say that we are defending Islam, when in, in fact what we're really defending or attempting to defend is the truth. And the truth seems to be that the demonization that's occurring is not simply a demonization of Arabs. You have the, the the neocons and the Zionists, who, of course, the Zionists are not necessarily Jewish in, in the, the religious sense of the term, because, of course, there are many Jews who are, are appalled at what the Zionists are doing. You have the neocons who are hiding behind the mask of Christianity. You have the Zionists who are hiding behind, behind the mask of Judaism. And those two groups are demonizing the Arabs, or Islam, and yet you also have the fundamentalist Christians who believe that the rapture will occur, and if the Jews don't convert to Christianity, they're going to be wiped out. So essentially you have these three groups, and they're each being set up to kill each other off, more or less. We see that the three monotheistic religions have formed a complex system, And they each need one another to survive because not only do they identify themselves by what they believe, but very, very strongly they identify with what they don't believe and portray their their enemies as being infidels. And in this, we don't think that that Islam is any better than uh, Christianity or Judaism. If people want to free their minds, they need to get rid of all of these kind of thought structures that they impose on themselves. Now, having said all that, we can see from recent events that it seems that the current phase of the operation, if you will, is the demonization of the Arabs. We have 9-11, we have the, the Madrid bombings, we have the London bombings. And as we look at the London bombings, uh, there are a number of curious facts that are coming forward. Uh, on PrisonPlanet.com, there was an article that reprinted uh, some messages that had been posted to the forum of the London Evening Standard where people who were in London at the time who were uh, using the public transportation going to work noticed that a number of the stations in the tube were closed more than an hour before the first bombings. So the question then is, who would have known to have closed these stations before? and to read some excerpts from from some of these. One of the writers says, I catch the Piccadilly line at 7.15 a.m. each morning from Southgate to reach my work in Kensington by 8. Normally, all seats are taken by Finsbury Park, and carriages are packed by King's Cross. However, yesterday, my tube journey was eerily quiet. For the first time ever, there were spare seats in my carriage all the way through Zone 1. It was noticeable enough for me to wonder what on earth was going on, This was at 7.45, over an hour before the attacks began. I've also heard people saying that the northern line was being shut down at the same time. And he asked the question, is there something we're not being told? To which another member responded, yes. I was due to pick a work colleague up 
from Ballum at 7.15, but when I got there, I was greeted by, with tube emergency vans, police, and hordes of people being turned away from a closed station. All very strange. They must have known something was going to happen. They surely had a tip-off. As I drove along the road, which also follows the tubes, they were shut, and hundreds of people were queuing for buses. When I reached Oval, which was open, there were two armed policemen in a road next to the station, which for a quiet area like that is extremely rare. So something was going on, and so if somebody knew something, we talked last week about the notifications that uh, the Israelis apparently had, but then that was being confused because there were other reports that Scotland Yard had received warnings from from the Israelis. So there's a lot more here left to come out, and we will be coming back to this uh, over the next weeks. Well, before we conclude, we would just like to bring our listeners' attention to the fact that Signs of the Times is having our first ever fundraiser. Uh, if you go to our website, you can read our explanation. And at the current time, there have been a number of people who've donated, uh, who have been extraordinarily generous, and we, all of us, certainly appreciate that. And hopefully, with all of your help, we can continue to turn up the heat a notch on the powers that be. And and we'd also like to emphasize that any amount, any amount at all, that our readers can donate, uh, we, we fully understand that many of our readers are in exactly the situation that we're in, which is not a very financially secure one, such as the the way of the world, especially when you begin to take a stand against all the lies and work against the, the forces that are out there. So we'd just like to emphasize that any amount at all would be greatly appreciated, and we thank you all very much for your support. The money that we're trying to raise is to help us expand our activities. These podcasts are one aspect of that. The website enables us to reach some people. We're hoping that having a podcast will allow us to reach other people who maybe don't know anything about our work on the Science of the Times. Also, we had the Pentagon Strike Flash presentation, which about six months ago had reached over 300 million people around the world. And we are working on more such presentations. And next week, in fact, we will be doing an interview. Our podcast will be an interview with the creator of the Pentagon Strike Flash animation, Darren Williams, and we'll be talking in depth about 9-11. And so if any of our listeners and readers have any questions that they would like answered, by all means, send them to us at our email address, and you can find that on our webpage, www.signsofthetimes.org. So to finish, we'd like to play a little music. The song is called You Lied, and it's a song about George Bush. We tried to give a little overview of the reign of this man. It's now five years that he's been in power. And if you like the song, be sure to spread it far and wide. It's available for download from our website. The song had its origin uh, a few weeks ago when, as you may recall, Bob Geldof made a remark prior to the Live 8 concerts that he did not want any of the musicians participating to say anything nasty about Mr. Bush. Well, we heard that, and the little short hairs on the back of our neck stood up. And we thought, geez, if we were in the position of being a musician at at Live 8, how would we try to slip one past? And the song wrote itself. 
We then passed the song off to a friend of ours at Away With The Fairies, and this is what he came up with. Well, thank you for listening. And we'll see you next week. It's a lie.